All right, John 4. John chapter 4. We are going to finish John 3 on Sunday. We'll come back and finish up that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, which really has turned from a dialogue into a monologue as Jesus uh, teaches all these amazing, wonderful, glorious truths about being born again and about what all that means. We're going to pick up right at the beginning of chapter 4 and continue forward. Verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And we talked about that last week, how how Jesus came into, began his public ministry really kind of right alongside John. That There, there wasn't a, a strict and abrupt transition to Jesus' ministry, but he, he continued, he and his, and his disciples continued the baptismal ministry that John was doing. There have still been questions about that. John's baptism was a baptism of preparation, a baptism of repentance. It was not like our baptism today, which is a sign of the the work of salvation that Jesus has done in our lives. And even when Jesus had his disciples baptizing, it wasn't like our baptism because Jesus hadn't died yet. So there was no death of Christ to be baptized into. It was still about getting the heart right. And God is so good about that in giving us things that help us to think about what it means to get our hearts right before Him. See, that's what matters to the Lord. It's a right heart. It's not right behavior, because if the heart is right, the behavior is going to be right. If the heart is correct with the Lord, the actions are going to change. But if you try to work the actions, what you get is religion. So God always shoots for the heart, always aims for the heart. He does with Nicodemus, and Jesus does now with another person who is introduced to us. But before we get there, verse 4 says, He had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. As if there were no other choice. Now, granted, it's the most direct route. If you look at a Bible map, you can look in the back of your Bibles right now and look at a map of of the Promised Land of the Holy Land of the time of Jesus. And you'll see that up at the top is Galilee and down in toward the middle is Judea and right smack between the two is Samaria. So would you, you would assume looking at a map, well, of course he had to go through Samaria. i got to go through Oregon to get to California. It makes sense. Samaria is right in the middle. It was the most direct route from Judea up to the Galilee. But it was not the most desirable route. And most Jews didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, there wasn't a had to. If you were a righteous, practicing, orthodox Jew in the day, you would not have gone through Samaria if you could at all possibly avoid it. There was bad blood there. And so the Jews avoided Samaria. Better to head east and skirt along the side, the outskirts of Samaria, along the Jordan River, and then make your way across into the Galilee. Now you need to understand the cultural rift between Jews and Samaritans. Maybe you're familiar with it. It was pretty severe. And there are good reasons for it. 600 years before this time, 600 B.C., roughly right around there, 586, Babylon conquered Jerusalem. You know, burn the temple to the ground. And the Babylonians did what they always did, standard operating procedure. They resettled exiles from other nations into the land of Judah, into the region known as Samaria. 
And there were Jews that remained. Not all the Jews were taken into captivity. And I'm not even talking about that band of Jews that that went and hid out and tried to fight back and then fled down to Egypt. There were Jews who stayed right there in the land. The elderly, the infirm, the non-threats to Babylon. They stayed there in the land. Along with all these resettled peoples from these conquered nations that Babylon had conquered, they brought them in. That was how Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon maintained control of the known world. They just got rid of nationality. They got rid of culture. They mixed it all into a big melting pot. And that way, you really didn't know what to think or what to believe, so you kind of started a new Babylonian thing. When the Jews came back from their Babylonian captivity back into the land, 70 years later, now here are these Samaritans. Some of them welcomed the Jews. Most of them did not. Some of them said, hey, we're your brothers and sisters. And those who were coming back from the exile were like, mm-mm, not if you're married to her. Not if you're related to him. Not if you're all intermingled and mixed blood. No, you are not related to us. And so there were bad feelings on that side. But on the other side, it just got messy. Between the Jews and the Samaritans. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Daniel told us prophetically it would get messy. He said, you are to know, actually the angel speaking to Daniel, Gabriel said, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Speaking of periods of, it's another teaching for another time. Just trust me. Speaking of periods of sevens, seven year periods, seven sevens, 49 years, and then another 62 sevens, add it all up and figure it out. But here's the point. The angel says, Jerusalem will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So Gabriel told Daniel to tell the people, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt, but it's not going to be easy. We know from reading through the book of Nehemiah that they built with with swords in in one hand and hammers in the other hand. That they had to be prepared to defend themselves because the threat was imminent and was very real. Both Ezra and Nehemiah reveal the trouble the Jews had from the outsiders, mostly from the Samaritans, bearing down, trying to keep them from resettling, reestablishing themselves. Let me just read this to you. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 1. Which says, it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah writing, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy of Samaria and said, why are these feeble Jews? What are they doing? Are they going to restore for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was near him. And he said, even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, it should break their stone wall down. (laughs) And they're all laughing and and making fun. And Nehemiah says, hear, O God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads. Give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So there really wasn't a good feeling between the people of Samaria and the people of Judea. Deuteronomy tells us some interesting things that the Samaritans glommed onto and altered a bit. 
You see, more took place. Things got worse. In the time after the Jews finally did come back and resettle the land of Judah, the Samaritans were still in Samaria, and there was that conflict. And in the meantime, the Samaritans had developed their own theology. It's an interesting theology. It's similar to Judaism in many ways. But their theology went as far as Moses and stopped. Rejecting any and all prophets that came after Moses, they would only listen to the teachings of Moses, and they based much of their belief system on Deuteronomy. On Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, which says, You shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling, and there you shall come. Where was God talking about? Any guesses? Where's the place that He would establish His name that all the people of Israel would come to worship Him? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Zion. The Temple Mount. Right? And we know that. We look back. We understand that. It's very clear through the, the law and the prophets that He ultimately was pointing to Jerusalem down the road. Well, the Samaritans rejected that. In fact, the Samaritan Bible slightly altered that verse. Instead of saying, the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes, speaking future tense, something that would happen later, the Samaritan Bible says the Lord your God has chosen the place for His name to dwell. You know what the difference is? It's the letter Yod in the Hebrew. You know when Jesus says not one jot is going to be removed from the law? That's what He's talking about, the Yod. It's the smallest little hook tiny little letter in the Hebrew and if you add it, it says one thing. If you take it away, it says another thing. It's that tiny. Amazing. Incredible. And then from there, the Samaritans began to add into Scripture things that would prove their point that you were not to worship in Jerusalem. He was never talking about Jerusalem. No, he was talking about Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim, perhaps you remember Mount Gerizim, it's called the Mount of Blessing. It's directly across with a great valley from Mount Ebal. You can stand on the one and look straight across from the other, and then you can look down to the region that is all Samaria. Mount Gerizim, even to the Samaritans, and there are a few Samaritans apparently left in the world today, and they still look to Mount Gerizim as their high holy place. They see it as the highest mountain in the world. It's not. But they view it that way. And after the Ten Commandments in the Samaritan Scriptures, right after the Ten Commandments in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Samaritan Bible adds an entire paragraph commanding the people to gather stones, plaster them white, and build an altar on Mount Gerizim. What's interesting about that is Deuteronomy 27 does say, the Lord does tell the people, I want you to gather stones, plaster them white, and build an altar on Mount Ebal, which is the Mount of Cursing. You see, you really don't need an altar on the Mount of Blessing. You need an altar on the Mount of Cursing. You need to offer sacrifices where the curse is. What does this all have to do with John chapter 4? Hang on, we're getting there. Just building the background here. 
And so they believed they were commanded and would teach them their children and future generations that Mount Gerizim is the place. Even though that contradicts Deuteronomy 27, which says Mount Ebal was the place that this altar was to be built for sacrifice and then for the calling out of curses, Mount Ebal, and blessings, Mount Gerizim. It's a whole thing in the latter part of Deuteronomy. So, because the Samaritans made that tiny little yod change and began to alter the Scriptures and come up with their own way of doing things, in 400 B.C. they built a temple on the top of Mount Gerizim. 400 B.C. It would stand there as an affront truly to Judaism for 300 years until about 108 B.C. Before I tell you what happened in 108 B.C., I want to point out that little changes make big messes. A tiny little yod, just a tiny mark, changed the apparent meaning of a single scripture and divided a people and sent those who were called Samaritans in a completely wrong direction. Now, I've told you before, I do not want to be a legalist. But I'll tell you, little alterations, reinterpretations, additions, subtractions, little changes make for big messes. And it may not seem like that big a deal right now. We'll just alter this one thing. We'll just leave out this one sentence. We'll change this one word. We'll imply something different. It's not that big. It's not a salvation issue, someone might say. And it may not be. The yod may not be that big a deal at first. But after a while, it gets messier and messier and messier. The bitterness, the hatred, and the apostasy truly among the Samaritans just grew and grew and grew. In 108 B.C., the grandson of Mattathias Maccabees. You know, Judah Maccabees and the Maccabee brothers came along and they drove out the the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes and, and it's an amazing story. Well, the grandson was a guy named John. He became high priest in Israel in what was a somewhat restored kingdom. There, After Antiochus was driven out, this was in the 160s BC, there was actually a surge of national pride again. Hey, maybe Israel's back. Maybe we can, we can have the kingdom restored right now. They were very excited about this. And they had a high priest, very popular high priest and ruler, although he would not allow them to call him king because he was a priest. And his name was John. They also called him Hyrcanus. John Hyrcanus. He came along in 108 B.C. and on a campaign into Samaria, wiped out the Samaritan temple. What do you think that did for Jewish and Samaritan relations? Again, it just went from bad to worse. And from that time all the way down to Jesus' day, Jews and Samaritans remained hateful, spiteful, and suspicious of each other. The Jews said the Samaritans are half-bloods and unclean. The Samaritans said the Jews are jerks. I mean, basically it was that. And so any thinking Jew would do everything they possibly could to avoid Samaria. You did not have to go to Samaria. As a matter of fact, Jesus doesn't have to do anything, does He? He's Jesus. 
He doesn't have to go anywhere. He doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to heal or save anyone. He's Jesus. He can do pretty much whatever He wants. But the Scripture tells us He had to go through Samaria. And I've noticed in the Bible there's always grace in the had-tos of Jesus. He had to be lifted up. He said, I must be lifted up. He he had to put on flesh and dwell among us. Jesus, constrained by His own nature, had to be full of grace and truth. Because that's who He is. The had-tos of Jesus. And on this particular day, there was an appointment that He had to keep. She didn't know about it, but He did. And so He had to pass through Samaria. This appointment we're going to look at was very personal, but it was also very public. It was immediate, that is, to the moment. It was also far-reaching in its implications, I believe, reaching all the way to us tonight. There are things in this appointment we needed to hear, we need to understand. And Jesus had it all worked out. This is no chance encounter. I read a couple of commentaries this past week that referred to this as a chance encounter. Jesus was sitting by the well. She came up. He thought, ah, here's someone to talk to. Jesus didn't do stuff by chance. He didn't accidentally end up in a place and go, oh, well, I better make something of today. I am here only for, you know, 33 years. I'm going to get some work done. No. He absolutely had to pass through Samaria. Verse 5, So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, if you're looking at Roman times, that would be 6 p.m. We're not looking at Roman time. And in fact, throughout the Gospel of John... John is referring to Hebrew time. He is still very much a Jew. Yes, he writes his gospel in Greek. Yes, he writes it in such a way that it, that it crosses cultures and anybody can understand it and read it. But John is a Jew. Remember that, because there's very much Hebrew in the background and in the way that John writes and thinks, though he is writing to largely a Greek audience. It was the sixth hour. What would that be? Noon. Noon by Jewish reckoning. High noon. Now prior to the region becoming Samaria, it was Manasseh. It belonged to Manasseh. Jacob's well and Mount Gerizim were given primarily as an inheritance to Joseph. Manasseh and Ephraim, remember, were Joseph's two boys. And Jacob took those two grandsons of him and named them as his sons, adding them into the inheritance because honestly, (laughs) Joseph didn't need it. You know, if you're second to the ruler of Pharaoh of of Egypt, you're pretty much dialed in for life. But Joseph did get a very specific parcel of land. Genesis 48, 22, I give you one portion more than your brothers, Jacob said to Joseph. One portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. The word portion in the Hebrew, this is Genesis 48, the word portion is Shechem. Shechem, which means shoulder. And the reason the word is used, and the reason why the city of Shechem is named Shechem, is because right below is Shechem, and Mount Gerizim rises like a shoulder above Shechem. 
If you were to stand on Mount Gerizim, you would look across a valley, and there's Mount Ebal, not far, about a stone's throw, really, from the top of Mount Gerizim. And down in that valley below to the right is Shechem, and there in Shechem is Jacob's well. When the Israelites brought Joseph's bones back into the promised land, they buried his bones there in Shechem. His tomb, a shrine, even to Muslims who hold Joseph as one of their own prophets. Today, Shechem has another name. Anyone know what Shechem is? Nablus. Now, if you haven't heard the name Nablus, it is probably the hottest hotbed of terrorism in the land. More so even than Bethlehem, which was a hotbed of terrorism until they built the security fence. Now it's Nablus. Nablus is a dangerous, dangerous place. Jews are not allowed to go into Nablus, especially since uh, 2011. All Israelis are barred. It's illegal for a Jewish Israeli to go into Nablus today. Because to do so is to take your life in your own hands and the government says we're not going to mess with that. You see, there in Nablus, Joseph's tomb has been destroyed by the Muslims three times. I thought he was one of their prophets. Well, yeah, apparently. But in 2000, after the Oslo Accords, you may remember this history, but after the Oslo Accords were signed and they were trying to reach for peace, well, part of the deal there was that the the Jews would give up control of Shechem, would hand over Shechem, the West Bank area, to Palestinian control, but they maintained themselves control of Joseph's tomb. Well, when they handed over control of the rest of it to the Palestinians, they attacked Joseph's tomb, drove out the Jewish authority there, and destroyed the tomb completely. That was in 2000. In 2011, the son of a Knesset member went into Nablus to worship at Joseph's tomb. They murdered him, covered his bloody body with his talit, his prayer shawl, which soaked through quickly. You can see pictures of it, not that you'd want to. And they burned Joseph's tomb again. 2014, just this last June, they burned Joseph's tomb a third time. So I'm telling you all that just to say, Nablus is not a nice place. It's not a pretty place. The closest I've ever been was standing on Mount Gerizim looking down at Shechem and having our guide, Eitan, at the time say, see if you look down there about in the middle, see that that little shrine area? That's, That's Jacob's well. The well is still there. The well is about 100 feet deep today. It was far deeper back in this time, in Jesus' day. But the well was there. Just outside the city, actually, about 100 feet deep, as I said. But here we are at the well. It's the sixth hour, noon by Jewish reckoning. And I want you to see this in the scriptures. It's so fascinating to me. Jesus was weary. In fact, I'll give you a bunch of things. We'll walk through this. I'll actually outline this for you tonight. Number one, Jesus is weary. Jesus is weary. Anyone here weary tonight? It's okay, you can, you can admit it. I won't be looking for you to nod off. Jesus was just tired. It had been a long journey. He sends the apostles on into town to, you know, buy some Mexicar uh, burgers. Because he's just too tired. He's like, you guys go on. 
Well, he is weary. He also has an appointment. We'll get there. But he's weary. That's remarkable to me. Did Jesus get tired? John points this out. John, whose entire focus of his gospel is the divinity of Christ. Right? The deity of Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah, but the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Remember that word for flesh in John 1.14? Sarx. It's the basest Greek word for flesh, for skin, for, for organs. And Jesus became that. F.F. Bruce says, while our evangelist insists that it was the divine word that became flesh in Jesus, he insists at the same time that the divine word became flesh. He emphasizes those traits which attest to our Lord's genuine humanity. And this is no impassable visitant from another realm, untouched by our ordinary infirmities. In other words, if you ever have an exhausting day, guess what? So did Jesus. If you ever find yourself sorrowful, guess what? So was Jesus. If you ever stub your toe, so did Jesus. Things that we experience in our everyday life, Jesus experienced because He was fully man and fully God. He wore what we wear. He experienced what we experience. And the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 2.14, Since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. Why? That through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now I can't fully explain that to you. Other than to say Jesus had to become flesh for His death to work. For the sacrifice to be legit, He had to be fully human. And he was. If you ever feel weary from the journey, so does Jesus. So did he. Leslie and I were talking about that today. Sometimes the journey is tiring. By the way, did you misunderstand me on Sunday? Did anyone here hear me say that I want to die? Did anybody hear me say that I prefer, you know, just to be dead and done with this? Anyone, you kind of heard that a little bit? I guess I pushed that point a bit. Let me tell you what my attitude is. It's the same as Paul's. To live as Christ, to die as gain. I am not afraid of death. I welcome the time to be with the Father. But I love my life. Do not get me wrong. I'm a positive guy. I am. I drive my family nuts. I'm, my head pops off the pillow in the morning, and I'm singing, and I'm around. Hey, good morning, Anna Maria. And she's like... <laughs> and I love this fellowship. I said that on Sunday, I'm sure. I love you guys. I love what we do here. I love what we get to do together. I love watching ministry happen. I love being with my wife. I love playing with my kids. I love rainy days. I love sunny days. I love the beaches and the islands. We are in the most beautiful place in America. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) I love all of this. But don't you get weary on the journey sometimes? Sometimes it's just like... And as I said Sunday, come Lord Jesus. You see, because I know when Jesus comes, He's going to make it all great. He's going to fix all the holes in the ceiling. You know? He's going to make... The baptistry is going to sound perfect when Jesus comes. 
He'll take care of all those things. And so understand, I, I am joyous. God has blessed us with this world and with our lives. And there are so many good things. I just get weary sometimes. So did Jesus. And it is to this weary yet waiting Jesus that a world-weary yet unsuspecting woman came. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now there are different ways you could read that. One would be a little rude. Give me a drink. I mean, that just doesn't sound like Jesus. And yet the sentence seems a little sparse there, or a little, a little austere. Give me a drink. You know, kind of demanding. In the Greek, it's didomi ego pino. <laughs> I'm sure I completely botched that. But if you were to translate it, yes, it's give me a drink. But it's give me a drink more like, permit me a drink. Um, may I have a drink? Uh, could I have a sip? You know, it's, it's not demanding, it's just a request. It's, a, it's an honest and gentle request, not bossy, not demanding. And with it, Jesus breaks the icy barrier of the Samaritan Jewish problem. I just ask him for a drink. By the way, in John's Gospel, you know because we study this, the first sign of Jesus was at Cana of Galilee, and it was changing water to wine. The miracle of the wine. I would have thought that Sikar would have been a better spot for that miracle. Why? Because Sikar in the Hebrew means drunken. <laughs> water to wine in the drunken city would have been perfect. You know? The root word of Sikar in the Hebrew is shukar, and shukar means strong drink. Anytime you see strong drink or alcohol referred to in the Hebrew Scriptures, the word is shukar. Well, that's where this city gets its name, Sikar, drunken. I don't know if it was named after a long night of partying. I'm really not sure. But that's what Sikar means. And this encounter is about a drink. But not one that causes dullness or stupor. This is about a drink that brings clarity and life. Verse 8. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? John adds that little parenthetical statement. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so (laughs) she comes up to the well. He says, uh, permit me to have a drink. She looks at him and by looking, she knows Jew. How does she know? Well, he probably had his talit, his prayer shawl draped over his shoulders or perhaps she saw the hem of his robe which likely as as a practicing Jew would have been blue. Whatever it was, she looked at Jesus and knew he was a Jew and said, What? Are you talking to me? (laughs) Why would you do that? Jesus was weary, but secondly, the woman was wary. The woman was wary. This is such a cool contrast to Jesus' appointment with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And just give you a little taste of the difference, but I encourage you, if you're into these things and you want to study this out some more, do a comparison of John 3 and John 4. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus versus Jesus' conversation with this woman at the well. 
in the first conversation, Nicodemus sought Jesus out. In the cool of the night, in Jerusalem, at Passover, Nicodemus, a highly respected Jewish man, a ruler and a Pharisee. So there's story number one. Story number two. The woman didn't seek Jesus out. No, Jesus sought out a woman who, by the way, we never hear her name. For centuries, we've just called her the Samaritan woman. She's a nameless woman of a bad area. He sought her out in the heat of the day. Not in Jerusalem, but in Sychar, which it wasn't Passover, but he had to pass through. He had to. And she was, well, she wasn't a highly respected Jew. She was a socially rejected Samaritan woman. Another reason why Jesus shouldn't have been talking to her. She was a woman. What are you doing? And while Nicodemus was a ruler and a Pharisee, she was an adulteress and a pariah. An outcast in her own society. Now, people say, well, maybe too much has been made of that. Listen, women did not go to the well by themselves. And they certainly didn't go to the well by themselves in the middle of the day. They would go in the morning when it was cooler. It's hard work to draw the water. Or in the evening when it was cooler. And they would always go in groups. It's kind of like women who go to the bathroom today. I don't understand this. (laughs) But I am convinced, ladies, that's where all the secrets are told. (laughs) And we're on to you. We guys are different. If I see a guy going into the bathroom, I wait outside. (laughs) Until he comes out and then you know, we're very, very independent this way. Why am I talking about that? I don't know. Nicodemus. Nicodemus was, was wandering. Who are you? He was wandering about Jesus. And this woman was just wandering. Nicodemus was looking for truth. This woman is just lost. She comes shuffling out to the well here at midday. And I point that out just to say, you know what? It doesn't really matter if you think you're the Bible answer man. Or you're a broken, answerless woman. It doesn't matter. Jesus loves you the same. Jesus considers both worth His time. Both worth the appointment. Romans 2.11 says, There is no partiality with God. You know, that even means that He doesn't look at us as Christians as better than the world. Oh, He loves us. Wonderfully, gloriously loves us. And He with broken heart, loves the sinner just as much. He shows no partiality. And both needed Jesus. And gently and with patience and with compassion, He deals with them both. What He does is He meets them where they are to bring them to where He is. Or to who He is. But the woman is wary. Give me a drink. How is it you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan? Four Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And by the way, Jesus doesn't even have a bread of water bottle to fill up. And that's important to note. He had no vessel, no cup, nothing to put water into, nothing to drink out of. So the only way for her to give her him a drink would be for him to drink it out of her water pot. Ooh. I would only do that with my really good friends when we were kids, you know? And drink out of the soda bottle without wiping it off. That was a sign of true friendship. (laughs) This phrase, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The Greek word dealings there is synchromai. 
synchro am I? And it's literally translated, it can be translated dealings, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, it also can be translated use together. Jews do not use together with Samaritans. And in fact, because of that, there are some translations, some Bible scholars who say it can be translated, Jews and Samaritans don't drink from the same. Don't use the same vessel. How can you ask me for a drink out of my water pot? You've got nothing, and you wouldn't dare drink out of this, would you? And I certainly wouldn't drink out of something you've got, even if it's a a Nalgene water bottle. I'm not drinking out of that. (laughs) They don't share the same cup. Orthodox Jews went so far as to believe they would be defiled if they ate or drank after a Samaritan. Rendered unclean, unholy. And note this, in A.D. 66, so a little bit after this, a rabbinical law was written and added to the books that stated Samaritan women were continuously unclean, not just once a month. Do you get my drift? This is rabbinical law. Don't ever touch a Samaritan woman because she's always unclean. That's deep hatred. So she says, why would you ask me? And Jesus, verse 10, answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him. And He would have given you living water. I love that. Doesn't that just sound good? Living water. Just ask. All you have to do is ask, Jesus is saying. That's what he always says, by the way. Just ask. Do you want my spirit? Ask. Do you want my presence? Ask. Do you want salvation? Ask. It is that simple. You would have asked me if you knew who you were talking to. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Now she's being a little impertinent. But you got to understand... Well, first of all, note this, number three. Jesus was weary, she was wary, and now number three, Jesus is winsome. It's not a word we use enough. He is winsome. There's just something joyful about Jesus. I was talking to my brother last week. He was having a rough day. And he was heading back to his office to study, and I was heading back to mine. And as we talked, before we left, I said, you know what, Ron? Isn't it cool? Because he's teaching Mark right now at his church. I said, isn't it cool that we're both going back to study the gospel? Because there's just something about being in the presence of Jesus. He's winsome. He lightens my load. He encourages me along the way. I just love talking about Jesus. I love all the Word of God. But when it's a story about Jesus, there's something different, isn't there? There is for me. Jesus is winsome. He's charming. He is just, you know, casting off this breach of social etiquette. And what he's doing is engaging in the most non-threatening, easygoing manner. Hey, could I have a drink? Why are you asking me for a drink? Hey, listen, you should be asking me for a drink of living water. And she still has no idea where he's going. We see living water and we go, oh, oh, living water. Oh, this is holy. This is special. It wasn't. The Greek phrase, zaoudor, living water, is just spring water. It's just water that's flowing. That's living water over there when it's flowing. 
You know, that's the idea. Actually, that's not because it just is recycled. But like a river, a stream, anything, living water. They would use that phrase. It would be zao udur, flowing water, like an artesian well. So what she heard him say is not what we hear him say. We hear him say living water and go, wow, this is, this is getting holy. She's not there. He says, you know what? If you had known who you were talking to, who said, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you fresh water. She's looking around. Well, you don't have a water pot. You have nothing to draw with. What are you talking about? Where are you going to get this living water? And, and this well, Jacob's well, provided that fresh living water. And so she may think he's offering to draw water for her, but as she points out, he doesn't have anything to do with do it with. So it's it's a strange situation. And now she's having this conversation with this unassuming Jew about spring water. And she has no idea that he's setting her up in the most holy way. But she seems to realize something's going on, so she, number four, tries to ward him off. Verse 12. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Her question is intended as a put-off. First of all, because it's rhetorical and negative. You are not greater than our father Jacob. The language in it, the word used right at the head of the sentence is not. You are not. Don't tell me you can give me living water. I've got Jacob's well. And by the way, Jacob is my father. Note that. She'll say it again. Jacob's my father, not yours, Jew. (laughs) Jacob, who became Israel. Interesting, but he's my father. And you're not greater than him? Jesus is not competing. He's leading gently out of the shallows and into the spiritual deep. Verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said, and I think forgot herself for a moment, (laughs) Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He has just sprung the reason for the meeting here. Number five in your notes, Jesus is water for a thirsty spirit. And He's making her thirsty. I still don't think she quite realizes it, but He's making her thirsty. He is drawing her in. Jesus is speaking now of something that is obviously greater than this well. Greater than Jacob. Greater than the old order and the law. Something new, something fresh. Living water that springs up to eternal life? Isaiah 12 verse 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. By the way, great verse to study and read if the world is making you weary. God's my salvation. (laughs) What do I have to worry about? Therefore, Isaiah 12 3, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. So Isaiah, the Messianic prophet, is is speaking of Jesus who now comes along and says, the water I give springs up to eternal life. 
He has just moved from the natural to the supernatural. He's so good at that. And the way He teaches and the way He draws people in simply, honestly, naturally, and then begins to translate into the supernatural and it blows our minds. But it's Jesus' style. Here's the wonder. And get this. He's just offered her eternal life. But He does it before they get into the discussion about her sordid past. He offers her salvation before dealing with her sin. And He always does. Please understand that. Brothers and sisters, it is always grace first. We do not take the message of condemnation. We take the message of the gospel of grace. We tell people about God's grace for them, His love for them, His offer of fresh water springing up unto eternal salvation. That's what we offer. Now, but what about the sin? God will deal with that. He does. He'll draw it out. He will work through that. But the first and primary message is always grace, grace, grace. Ephesians 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 1 says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Grace comes first. You were completely dead, every last one of you and me. And in fact, Paul says that. He says, we too were by nature objects of wrath. We were messed up. And while we were in that state, Jesus said, you want a drink? Would you like some fresh water? I'm here to give you eternal life. Before he even addresses the mess, he first offers his grace. 